Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm happy to say we have Logan Byrne on the show, and we'll be talking to Logan about his book, Blood of Tyrants, George Washington, and the Forging of the Presidency. I found this book very interesting, really intriguing, because it's written more or less explicitly with the present in mind. That is to say that Logan wants to tell us what the making of the American presidency and George Washington's involvement in that mean for us today. This is an unusual thing for a history book to do. I think it's a good thing for a history book to do because it adds one element that many historians forget, and that is relevance. Uh, Relevance is a bad word in much of academic history. Uh, We are taught to ignore it, um, I think much to our peril. So congratulations to Logan, and I suppose to all his readers that he uh, forewent, if that's the right word, for this particular dictum. So Logan, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Logan, um, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am an Owen Scholar at Yale Law School, and I'm originally from Bronxville, New York, a little town right above New York City. And I grew up, um, you know, split between there and Connecticut. And I ended up at Yale Law School. And when I was there, I had to write a thesis to graduate. (laughs) And so I was racking my brain. Now what am I going to write about? My background was in science and math, so I'm thinking, I can't write. So I sort of um, came across this issue of what does the commander-in-chief clause really mean? And as I went into it, I realized that people haven't really looked back to the history and when the founders wrote the Constitution, what did they have in mind? So I thought it was important to look into that. And as I started writing the the thesis, I um, kept finding more and more fascinating stories that had direct applicability to what we were seeing in the headlines today. So I, I write the thesis, and it ends up um, you know, winning some awards around the law school, and it got passed around to uh, Amy Chua, the tiger mom. And so she gets a hold of me, and she says, she says you know, who is this Logan? And I, I'm scared. I'm thinking I'm in trouble for something. And, and you know, I hi, Logan here. She said, come into my office. So I said, okay. So I go into her office, and she says, I think I'm going to get in trouble because I, I touch on you know, some pretty sensitive topics about war, about um, even torture, uh, military commissions, debt. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm really going to get it now. But she says, Logan, I want you to turn this into a book. Mm-hmm. And she really starts um, pressuring me and really cheering me on to turn that sort of dry academic thesis into a book that I want to make juicy and exactly what you said, relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, your book, uh, d- again, it does something that most historians almost by uh, a matter of professional ethics refuse to do, and that is uh, to take the past and make it bear on the present in a kind of interesting way. Um, and it also touches on something that I think that everybody really knows, but particularly law scholars, if I can speak generically, sort of refuse to recognize, and that is that things really can't be understood, even the law outside their context. Historians all know this. 
definitely right. Yeah, and and you know, so many times you hear people talk about the law as if it were sort of it came down from. Um, I always say it's written on the sky or something. You know, like <laughs> right. oh, there it is. You know, the Ten right. Commandments comes right down to Moses on the mount. There it is. <laughs> and in fact, it's made by people and people in particular contexts, and they have interests and foibles, and they make mistakes and things like this. And this is certainly true of the uh, American. A constitution and the particular parts of it that uh, deal with the presidency. You know, these things grow, I guess I would say, organically. They're not um, sort of, as I say, stamped on the sky. And you do a good job in the book of talking about how they developed organically. And there's some shocking things here, I think. <laughs> we can say that. Yeah. Right. I was surprised at what I was finding when I was doing the research for this. Yeah. I mean, I think many historians of the period and many historians of, I guess, what we generically call early modern, uh, the early modern world won't be particularly surprised that... Um, uh, most people really like to torture, <laughs> but but I think many legal scholars will be uh, surprised by this. Um, so much for original intent. So uh, let's let's begin talking about the book by getting the chronology straight. Because you know uh, I think chronology is the sort of soul of history. I mean I guess somebody else said something else was the soul of history. I don't remember what it was, but chronology. So let me see if I have this right. And you can tell me I'm not a scholar of uh, America or the American Revolutionary Period. So the Revolutionary War. Uh, begins in 1775, right? That's right. That's right. The Declaration of Independence is 76. That's correct. The uh, thing winds up pretty quickly by the standards of modern wars. <laughs> it's all over by 83. Um, yes. 83, I think that's the Battle of Yorktown. Is that when the Battle of Yorktown occurs? I don't remember. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. right. That's so it's all, it's all over. Peace of Paris. And then I wanted to ask you about this. There's this peculiar period uh, between 83 and uh, 87. 87 is when we get the Constitution, right? That's right. What the hell happens then? What what is going on? What ha- what does George Washington do between eighty three and eighty seven? Then he becomes president in eighty nine. So what what ha- what is, what goes on then? So Washington does something surprising. He retires. <laughs> he, he wins the war, and everyone's saying, "Oh my goodness, we have our new king. You know, he could save us." And Washington says, "No way. I did not fight this huge war and sacrifice so much." for our liberties, only to become the new monarch. Mm-hmm. So he, he says, I'm going back to my farm. All right, Cincinnati, back to the plow. Exactly right. So he, he you know, the founders are fascinated by um, the classics, and they look back to the, you know, the Roman precedents for these things, and Washington knew Cincinnati, and he would be forever compared to him, because he went back, he went back to the plow. Um, and he, you know, he, he was very happy there. He, you know, he was very much in love with Martha. He loved Mount Vernon, and he sort of liked the tranquil existence that he had um, and sort of rebuilding his his own little empire there in Mount Vernon. But then, at the same time, the country was not doing so well. We were basically falling apart. What was happening was the Articles of Confederation, which were, was our, you know, our government back then, wasn't really uniting the country. Instead, we sort of had 13 different little Commonwealth um, that were fighting with one another. You know, Connecticut and New York were fighting. Uh, North and South, they were fighting. And there's no really unifying government because the the Congress had very few powers. I mean, they they, they couldn't tax. They couldn't um, stop the states from from fighting with one another and imposing um, tariffs. Um, so, think for exam- example, if Massachusetts decides that they hate New Hampshire and they're going to tax the heck out of anything that comes from New Hampshire. That really is bad for the economy. So, you know, that was, the economy was really spiraling. Our national debt, I mean, this might sound a little bit like today, was really out of control. 
and we had very little um, concerted effort in trying to repay it. So what really brought everything to a head was probably Shays Rebellion up in Massachusetts, where the same farmers who had started the revolution back at the Battle of Lexington in 1775 uh, up in Massachusetts, they picked up their, their guns and they started marching upon the Massachusetts legislature. And there's, they saw the new tyrants as the politicians in Boston. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the country is looking at this in horror. Here we go again. Is this what the country is going to be? Perpetual war and fighting um, in which you know people constantly rising up against every gov- kind of government, no matter whether it was a far-off monarch or even their own democracy. And that's what really was a wake-up call to Washington and the other founders that this isn't working. We need to have a new government that would be able to unite the country while protecting our own liberties. Mm-hmm. And how do they go about that? And what, what, what role does Washington play in that business? He's back on the farm and uh, things were falling apart. They really weren't ever together. Uh, and, right. and so what happens? So Washington is on his farm and he keeps getting all these visitors. People keep dropping by his house. <laughs> and it, it actually became so bad at one point he started changing the signs to sort of get people lost because he, was, he couldn't handle all the, the company. But he was, he was very cordial. He always invited whoever came to stay for dinner, and he'd have them stay over in, his, in, his, in rooms he had set aside for them. So he was learning from these people, and he was learning about this information. And it, it was troubling. So they had this idea, okay, well, why don't we convene in, uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and sort of we'll rework the Articles of Confederation, we'll tweak it a bit, because obviously they're not working the way they are. And even just that was controversial, because people thought, you know what, they're going to take away um, you know, our own liberties, and we're, our states might have less power. Um, in fact, Rhode Island refused to even attend the convention, um, because they thought it as illegal. So they, they said, okay, Washington, we need you. We need your your status as sort of the most revered American alive. Um, because people forget, even back then, he was looked upon as sort of this amazing human being who had led the country um, despite, you know, his own sacrifice. So they, they said, Washington, we need you. Please come to Philadelphia and um, lend your weight to this convention. Because otherwise, the United States is going to fall apart. Now, Washington, for his part, he was afraid to do this because he, he was looking at his own legacy. He was already on top. <laughs> he already had it sealed. Now he has to go to this um, convention that, you know, Rhode Island's calling illegal. Other people are very, you know, skeptical of whether they'll be able to really hash anything out because, you know, then now things, you know, don't really change that much. The politicians were all bickering with one another, and they weren't getting much done. So he, he, he finally sees it as sort of his moral duty to, to risk his own reputation again and try to fix the country. So he, he goes up to um, Philadelphia. He's one of the first to arrive, as usual. He's very, you know, very punctual. And there aren't that many people there yet. And they're nervous because um, they're afraid that the other delegates are boycotting and that they're not willing to attend this sort of, 
you know, potentially a legal convention. So it takes them weeks um, of waiting, and then finally the delegates show up, um, and just enough for a quorum, and they start they start discussing how we're going to change these things. Then um, Madison and Hamilton really um, they came with an agenda. They knew that tweaking the articles as the convention was meant to do was not enough. They convinced everyone to really scrap the Article of Confederation and draft a new constitution. So now we're going from, um, you know, dicey to even worse. We're really changing things. And Washington, they make the president of the convention because who else in the room could possibly have that kind of clout to keep the politicians that are, you know, at the convention in line? And so Washington is at the convention, standing up at the, yeah, almost has a throne. He's, <laughs> he's up on a couple steps with a big high-backed chair, and on the back of the chair is a picture of a rising sun. Um, it's really, you know, he, he, he seems like he's on a throne. So, but this is very effective. So he's at this convention, and, um, and the delegates are very um, skeptical of the ability to actually create a new a new government, and he's there sort of as a calming force, and he makes them come to agreement. And it's funny because there's some, there's some very interesting stories that I, I kind of do work into the book just because I, I find them fascinating, where um, Hamilton makes a dare to his buddy. He says, you know, go up to Washington's platform and, you know, pat him on the back and say, you know, good day, sir, and sort of treat him like a, like a buddy. So the delegate goes up and does it. Washington freezes and just glares at him, not saying one word for about a minute. And the rest of the delegates in the room are like squirming in discomfort. And that sort of that, that sort of paints the picture of how Washington was able to command the room. He actually didn't even speak very much, but just sort of that presence um, provided the dignity to the outside world, but also sort of the he's a disciplinarian. Um, at the front of the room, and it actually kept the delegates in line um, and, you know, creating the new constitution. That's not to say that they didn't afterwards every night. They went out to different taverns and drank a lot, but that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Washington um, and delegates, they come up with this new constitution, and then it comes time um, to have the states ratify it. And no one's particularly happy with the... the, um, you know, the, the Constitution, you know, Washington describes it as um, certainly not perfect, but, the, you know, the best they can do. And um, he works with the, um, the Federalists and the, you know, the Federalist papers that were circulated, um, you know, by Hamilton and Jay. And they work to convince the states that this is in their best interests. Um, and one one uh, delegate said, you know, without a doubt, this Constitution came into being, and we were able to convince the states due to George Washington. So he again was the driving force. So finally, finally they adopted, and now they need a new president, and it's to the point where they don't just want Washington to be the first president. They need him to be the first president. There's no one else who could possibly fill the role and provide it with the legitimacy that it needed to really survive. 
so Washington goes in this role, and he sort of um, he makes a lot of it up as he goes along. And uh, you know, a big part of this book is looking at when we name the you know the president in Article Two of the Constitution, the commander in chief of the Army and Navy. What powers does that entail? And I looked at Washington and the precedence that he set as commander-in-chief, the only commander-in-chief the United States ever had during the Revolutionary War, and say, okay, well, when the founders created the Constitution, this is what they had in mind. Mm -hmm. And you're right what you were saying before about how often historians try to um, you know, separate and keep the past in the past and the present where it is. But when it comes to the law, I think it's you know, very important to look see what we the people, when we created that law, what we had in mind. So really, anyone who's really interested and believes in democracy should care what those, you know, the voters were thinking when they created that law. And more and more, um, you're seeing this, that the, you know, the, the Supreme Court of the United States today looks to history just like this in determining what the Constitution means. So there are there is debate um, in you know in the, in the legal world about what, about originalism and what the original understanding of these of the Constitution was and you know, how much weight we should give it and people definitely have conflicting views but when it comes down to it whether we are you know are true believers in originalism or not it still impacts us this history because the Supreme Court says it does mm-hmm. so the um, I mean, even look at the, um, you know, the Heller decision from a couple of years back, uh, the Washington, D.C. versus Heller, and it was involving um, uh, right to bear arms. And from sort of the liberal end of the court to the conservative end of the court, they were all using historic, historical arguments from the founding in their opinions. Mm-hmm. So right then and there, it shows you that this history is directly relevant. So that's what I endeavored to do, was really connect the history to today, because it really does affect us. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think you're right to say that uh, history is most relevant in certain specific contexts, and and one of them is obviously the courtroom, because you have to figure out what happened. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, people talk about the theory of the case and which one is right, and then juries decide or judges decide. And we're talking about the past here, and these things have to be quote-unquote reconstructed. Another one is uh, in constitutional law, as you say. I mean, by a kind of naive, I think, understanding, uh, that moment in um, 1787 stops time. At that moment, we had decided what to do. And this was the way we were going to arrange things, and it was not going to change, because we decided, and that was that. But then, of course, things continue to develop. And the distance between that time and this time changes tremendously. But we still have to go back and see what they intended, so we understand the distance between um, them and us. I mean, this is a, a very interesting place in historical study. There really is no other place like it. I think another thing to say that bears, bears saying, and especially to our audience, largely people that are interested in history, is that what they were doing in um, between 83 and 87, especially in 87, was unprecedented, at least in the European tradition, and that is they were creating institutions that had never existed before. No other country really had a president. There was no such thing as a presidency. They could not look to other models and say, oh, this is what we're going to do. They were making it up. 
And they were radical. They, they yeah, were. I mean, and they, they were, you know, again, the idea of a republic, that was sort of new. The idea of a constitution, a formal constitution, that was sort of new. I mean, people in the Enlightenment talk about constitutions. They write ones for places like Poland that don't ever get enacted. But here, you're actually going to make one, and it's going to go into force. And it's going to have a president. Now, what a president is, anybody, you know, it's, I mean, it's anybody's guess. Because there right. weren't any of these things around, really, in uh, 1787. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. What... Um, what choices did they have before them when they were talking about a chief executive? I mean, one is obviously a monarch, uh, and that would have been the t- conventional one. So why did they choose a president? Right. So monarchy was a you know tried and true, proven form of government that they that they were used to, um, and many contemplated having Washington be the, you know, the king. In fact, when after the revolution was over, um, Washington was asking his portraitist, a man named West. Um, who was an American, what's going to happen with George Washington? And West says, oh, well, I hear he's going back to his farm. And George III sort of scoffs at that and says, well, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man in the world. <laughs> and sure enough, he was. And, mm-hmm. and I think what Washington really was able to do was define uh, this new kind of executive that was... Um, the answer to the people, because this is sort of a, a radical idea. Because you know the United States is coming from a the you know the English tradition in which the king and his subjects had a um, a natural order in which the king was sort of the father and the subjects were his mm-hmm. children, and this is this is deeply ingrained in sort of the the psyche of the era. Um, but the, the Americans really didn't like this. They, they said, this is horrendous. And if that king, you know, father figure is not protecting our rights, then you know what? We're not loyal. And we're, we're only loyal to the government as it is protecting our liberties. So for them, the sovereign was shifted from power in the monarch to the people themselves. Mm-hmm. And Washington really took this to heart. And they, they did look at you know, precedents um, in the sense that they were looking at the Enlightenment ideals that you mentioned, as well as the, you know, the Roman and um, Greek Republic, mm-hmm. to you know, give a sense of how this could possibly work. But you're absolutely right. They were making a lot of this up as they went along. And Washington was really the, you know, the figurehead who was able to do that. And one interesting point about you know, creating this presidency and having Washington in the role was that Washington had no children. He, you know, it's it speculated that he had, you know, he had smallpox in his teens that made him infertile. But regardless of why he had no children, um, that also meant it signaled to the people that he had no heirs to, the, to his, you know, throne or his mm-hmm. office. So that actually made them more comfortable with putting Washington in that position because they weren't afraid that he might, you know, even if he was um, so principled that he'd be unwilling to make himself king, that maybe his son would. Mm-hmm. So he was able to define this, you know, this new ambiguous term of presidency um, by just being the man he was. And who was everyone yeah. learned, learned him, uh, you know, had learned that he would be, this, you know, highly principled, highly respectful of the citizens. Um, and he acted throughout the war as not only liberty's defender, but just the American people's defender. 
so it comes out a lot um, in you know these modern conflicts um, regarding you know when should the, the president use force, um, how should the president treat citizens, and what Washington did was he created a presidency in which that office was empowered to fiercely defend Americans from foreign foes. And so looking at issues of today, like, um, you know, even drone, drone strikes or looking at um, military commissions like you know, uh, KSM down in Guantanamo Bay or um, bin Laden's son-in-law on trial right now, Washington really um, crushed foreign invaders. He, he was really, you know, the fact that um, KSM down in Guantanamo is still alive, Washington would be appalled. The fact mm-hmm. that Bin Laden's son-in-law um, is on trial um, in a civilian, you know, courtroom, Washington would think that was ridiculous. So Washington, set, you know, set up the presidency to, to fiercely defend us from foreign foes. But at the same time, he was very um, careful to respect and defend American citizens themselves. So now we come to um, you know the Boston bombings, where right now we're dealing with a with you know like or not a citizen, and for that kind of um, offender, you know, sort of, sort of a, an American citizen who has you know gone against his country, Washington, you know, would have very little sympathy for him. But at the same time, he'd see it as important to treat him with the procedures of a citizen and the protections and sort of convict him and potentially even execute him, but do so in such a way that we're not trampling the citizens' liberties that he fought and created a presidency to defend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, before I, I want to talk more about these individual sort of policy political questions, but before we say that, I, I want to go back just a little bit to this notion that must have been very controversial at the time, and I don't know that the uh, what is substantively a monarch uh, would not have the right of succession. That is, monarchy has succession worked out very well. It's intuitive that the eldest son, or at least the most capable son, and in some cases daughter, I suppose, will take over when the monarch croaks or when the monarch abdicates. This is a well-worked-out principle. It has precedent. It was in the Bible. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that they should be elected, that must have been uh, a, a very um, kind of almost heart-stopping thing for them. Uh, and, and one of the things I guess I want to point out is they had no – and this is, goes to the point of original intent again. They, they were worried about this, I think, and they had no uh, intention of letting the people decide who the next president was. It was a very small section of the people. Mm-hmm. And it was them, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. They, they were not all about popular sovereignty in that sense. They were not going to spread the franchise to everybody. And they, they, took, they took lots of measures to make sure that everybody didn't get the franchise. Only mm-hmm. they did. Um, so in that sense, you know, we, we already have a moment in the presidency which really divides then from now. Mm-hmm. If Absolutely. You, yeah, I mean, if you see what I mean. It just, it, they, did, they talk, did they talk about election as kind of a scary thing? How do they deal with this question of transition of power? (laughs) This is always a problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's always a problem. So they, regarding transition, they weren't quite sure how it was going to work. So Washington, they decide four-year terms. But then after only two terms, then they're still, you know, figuring out how this government's going to work. Washington says, okay, I'm done. (laughs) So so then they say, oh, no, 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 what do we do? Um, 
so then we had, we had Adam, so you know that worked out fine. It was, it was okay in the end, but, but you're absolutely right in this whole. You know, this this was very scary to have, um, you know, anyone voting, but people don't quite realize that the Americans were afraid of too much democracy. Um, going back to Shays um, and his rebellion, that was almost seen as an example of too much democracy mm-hmm. in which the people are constantly um, fighting and they're, they're constantly, um, you know, overthrowing the government. And they, so instead they actually were creating a democratic republic. Um, and they wanted to, the republic in the sense that the representatives and there were, you know, there were, there was order without trampling the you know, individual liberties. And for individual citizens, that meant um, white men who... White property men. Well, white property men in some states, yes. Other, yeah. you know, other states didn't require the property, but you're right. And it was white property men in, um, in some states. And women were sort of um, disenfranchised citizens. Their role was not to vote, but to... Um, educate their sons to be um, knowledgeable in the affairs of the republic and grow up to help run it. Right. They were supposed to civilize people. I think that was the yes. standard line at the time. They yes. were the civilizational they were aspect. Yeah, that's what they did. <laughs> yes, they were supposed to civilize, which is, you know, kind of, a lot of this is very appalling looking back yeah, from our, our present day. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, they're, they're doing awful things. They're, you know, they were, they were owning other people. They, you know, the women were treated... Um, you know, very you know, strangely from what we what we see now, but the the um, the right the, the women were seen as you know they, they were citizens and they were sort of seen as having a role. And in the book, I get into some really like fascinating women who were very strong. Abigail Adams is a great example. Yeah. You know, she said that she said you know if the British shall win. They'll fight. They'll face an army of Amazons in America, mm-hmm. and that, that is to say that the American women were very involved in not only the war but the early republic. Mm-hmm. But again, they, no matter how many, how many sacrifices they made, that still didn't mean we were going to give them the right to vote. Yeah, yeah, that's, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's right. So you're right. So they said that they created a um, government that would have checks and balances against itself as well as has checks against too much democracy mm-hmm. and the, um, the masses, the will of the masses, constantly be um, governing and shifting and, and impacting the minority. So mm-hmm. when, we have the, um, when we look at the Constitution, we see a lot of that is per- supposed to protect us from the masses, you know, trampling certain rights those certain unalienable rights that people back then thought we had. So, for instance, um, today, when, say, you know, the, the majority of people all of a sudden decide that they are policy XYZ is the best thing in the world, um, they wanted to constrain that from using that to sort of, in, you know, infringe upon people's, um, own rights. So they, a better example might be, say all of a sudden, you know, slavery comes back into vogue and everyone wants to just vote and say, okay, let's have, you know, let's have slavery again. The Constitution is there. Right now we use the, you know, the 13th Amendment 
to say that the Constitution would not allow that, no matter how popular mm-hmm. it might be at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and this notion that, uh, that uh, I mean, in the early modern period, democracy was kind of a bad word, and what it meant was mob rule, and people were very fearful of it. And, uh, you know, it comes, you know, theoretically, it comes sort of from Montesquieu and then later from Tocqueville, this idea that the majority will kind of run amok and do things that will trample individual liberty. They were very mindful of that because they read all of this stuff. But I want to, again, go back to this very first couple of elections. Um, did, did, did Washington have any opposition when he ran? So Washington <laughs> was the only president to receive 100% of the vote. Yeah, that's, that's really... But no yeah. one ran against him. Yeah. Who could possibly run against this man? He was the president. He was the commander-in-chief. Yeah. I mean... He was unanimously, unanimously elected by the Electoral College in the first election, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he it sounds like the Soviet Union, doesn't it? It's a, you know. <laughs> it does. I mean, it's funny. You look, if that happened today, we'd be like, oh, wait, yeah. something, something's amiss. Yeah. But for, for them, it was sort of... He, this, this was the living embodiment of this office. So, of course... It would be him. Um, but you're right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem strange to us. I mean, when you think about the way those elections were handled and the way the Electoral College worked then, I mean, it seems profoundly undemocratic to us. But so let's go to some of these, these cases. Like, so one of the theses of your book is that the way Washington prosecuted the war had a powerful effect on the office of the presidency itself. So how, how do you make that argument? That's right. So, the, you know, the commander-in-chief clause... Um, this is what you know, really struck me as a student of the Yale Law and then as an attorney afterwards. It's, it's very ambiguous. People, you know, this day argue over what it means, what powers it entails. Does, you know, President Obama have the right to um, invade Syria without congressional approval, um, for example? You know, there's this debate, and throughout history, we've seen presidents, call, you know, point to the Commander-in-Chief Clause to you know, say, you know, they can do all sorts of things. And people have a hard time really unpacking what those few words mean. But to me, and, you know, as I go into the research, you'll see in the book, to the founders as well, it was really not unclear. It was unambiguous what those those powers were. And those powers were the powers that the commander-in-chief, the only one they'd ever had, George Washington, had just used when they were writing the Constitution. So I go back and I deliberately uh, organize the book in such a way that I'm looking at modern issues and looking at what Washington did, um, you know, often the analogy, um, to say, okay, well, the president today, he's constrained by Washington's precedence in this area, or he's empowered by Washington's precedence in, in this battle. So I show exactly what they had in mind to shed light on what those few words that we're all fighting over actually meant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, I think as a general rule, let me try to capture the thesis of the book, at least about the presidency, in, in as short a way as possible. And he may disagree with this, and that's fine. But it struck me reading the book that what they said and what they meant was uh, this guy, the president was in charge of all military activity, and he could run it any way he wanted to, so long as it was in the interest of Americans and American liberty. Period. That's very true. So definitely, um, 
they did give the you know Congress the power to declare war. But once war was underway, um, whether it was a formal declaration or Congress somehow you know other otherwise signaled that okay you know you're you're empowered to go at it. Once once we were there, you're right. The president had very broad sweeping powers to protect the nation. But, um, but, you know, sort of going back to that divide between, you know, foreign nationals versus American citizens, he had the power to defend Americans from abroad, um, but n- not much power when it came to defending Americans from one another. Mm-hmm. So they were very worried about, um, again, a new monarchy arising that would, you know, turn on the people. And they, they were cognizant of the fact that Washington wouldn't live forever and this president, you know, would be replaced. And they made them feel more comfortable in the initial years having Washington, but they still knew they had to look towards the future. And I sort of named the book Blood of Tyrants because Thomas Jefferson said the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patrons and tyrants. And if you think about that, that's really alarming. So I think that the, I think the founders were hoping to create a government where they, we wouldn't have to go through that, you know, less refreshing and sort of, you know, keep the true liberty, you know, going strong as it is. Um, and they wanted to do that by creating a, a president who was strong enough to protect us from tyrants abroad, but not so strong that he could become a tyrant himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the balancing act that Washington and you know, the president today you know, is walking. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that this is maybe, again, a kind of naive view, but this is the only element of traditional monarchy that they retained. They said when it comes to foreign affairs and war, that is combat against people who are not American citizens, the president is a monarch. He does whatever he wants. Period, in, end in, of story. In sense, that's, an, that's an interesting point. In a sense, absolutely. They, I mean, they had during the debates... Um, you know, sort of fierce discussion about dividing the commander-in-chief role among different people. And Washington had showed them, no, that's not going to work. When it comes to war, you kind of need one person in charge. Because in the start of the war, they tried um, micromanaging him by committee, by congressional committee. And it it was disastrous, sort of... Um, you know, the United States military was sort of, you know, like a like a squirrel jumping from one thing to another and back and forth, um, and it wasn't working. And then as the war went on, they came to find, okay, we need one guy in charge to protect us, otherwise we're going to all die. <laughs> um, you know, as the British were marching on Philadelphia, they got closer and closer to Philadelphia, Congress started to, you know, wake up and say, okay, well, th- these committees are great, but you know what? We're losing so badly, we're all going to be hanged by the British when they arrive. So let's just give Washington the power he needs. And that sort of, that lingered on into the, you know, the convention. And when they're discussing, discussing the Constitution, um, and they have this, they bring up again, okay, well, let's, what about the idea of having, you know, multiple commanders-in-chief, you know, just to divide the power? Because, um, again, we don't want that, him, you know, using it to subjugate the people. They say, you know what? We do fear that he becomes you know, the tyrant that we're trying to fight against. But at the same time, we're not going to have a country. We're not going to defend ourselves without granting him strong power over foreigners. Mm-hmm. 
And do they, do they? I guess let me ask this question: Do they think of the of future presidents as being military people? I mean, because it seems to me the primary duty of the president in this in this in this conception is, in fact, to defend the nation from external foes. I mean, do they think, well, okay, our king is going to be basically a general; he's going to run military affairs. So they they definitely saw that as a very important part of the role. Um, but it was, you know, that was you know obviously not his only role, and they did see him as you know, the, the chief executive of, of the country and sort of having all these other duties. But you're right, this was, this was a warring time, mm-hmm. and they had just gone through all these wars. And, and even, um, you know, as the, the Young Republic and the Constitution went into play, we, have, we soon have wars, um, you know, the wars, quasi-war with France um, comes up soon, and um, War of 1812. So this is really, it, it's a struggle, and we're sort of this young pretty weak nation surrounded by foes. Mm-hmm. British is still mad. The British are still mad. They want to take us back over. The French who are allies, they, they were allies um, just to, you know, stick it to the British. They didn't really like us that much. Spain was sort of eyeing our territory. They wanted to sort of, you know, conquer um, more than Mississippi. So we're really, in, you know, in this precarious position. And we do, you're right, we need a strong president to defend us. Um, so I think they definitely did um, see Washington as you know the, the perfect fit, being a military man. But at the same time, they're they're pretty comfortable um, early on with the switch from military men to um, to the politicians. So we we quickly move to Adams and and Jefferson, who were, were you know were not military men, but you know interestingly enough, they end up being you know somewhat hawkish in some areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you know, they, they were comfortable with having civilians in charge. And in some ways, they liked having civilians in charge just because there was always this, you know, this distrust for the military, um, again, becoming so strong that's going to take back over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So but the, the, the one sort of, um, I, I guess I would call it um, the, the one... The one weak spot in this argument that they had a military person involved involves the division of powers, and they do give the president the right to veto legislation, right? Isn't that true? Right. Yeah, right. right. It's very rarely exercised, but, but, but Washington has the right to do this. That's right. Yeah, so he does have a domestic role as well. Right, absolutely. There is you know, definitely domestic roles. He, you know, he's the enforcer of the laws, so the Congress passes the laws, and he, he executes the laws. Mm-hmm, right. Um, he's also, if he finds a law to be... Um, you know, unconstitutional. He has he has the power and the duty to to check Congress. So they want to create a system, you know, three branches with checks and balances, because they're extremely distrustful of government. And they're it's interestingly enough. We today we think of the, you know how strong the presidency has become. Um, back then, they were actually most worried about Congress. And <laughs> they really the most of the, the debates they discuss um, you know Congress becoming so strong that it's going to um, erode the powers of the other two branches. So it's it's funny how they 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 worked it in there that they, the president could you know check Congress via the vetoes, and also the, the Supreme Court was able to to check the other branches too by um, you know um, declaring uh, a law unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and, I mean, I guess I was going to say my understanding is is that these two things, these two moments in the Constitution, the one that gives. Uh, the president, basically dictatorial control over military affairs, and the other one that gives him or her, I suppose, the right to, uh, well, obviously it was him then, uh, mm-hmm. him uh, to veto legislation. Uh, doesn't that cover about 95% of what a president could do then? 
It does. You know, it, it covers a lot of what he could do because people forget how much the government has grown in general. So having all these administrative offices, um, it, we didn't have any of that. The, you know, the government was very small. Um, again, the states were very worried about giving too much control to some, you know, enormous government that was, you know, far away from them. So you're right. The president didn't wasn't overseeing um, all these different areas of government that have grown over the over the past couple centuries. Yeah, I mean, the executive didn't have much to execute, really. Uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it, it was it was very libertarian. They didn't, they weren't they didn't have too many laws. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. So let me let me let's turn the the uh, let's let's turn the discussion to these particular moments that are relevant to the present. And, and you know, you say that the presidency was forged in this sort of revolutionary war, and they carry it forward in the person. And I think it's important to recognize in the person of Washington, it really is. It's not as if they have this abstract idea. They have Washington in mind when they're doing this. Um, so let's begin with. Uh, I think the first issue you deal with is prisoners, prisoners of war. Uh, what what did uh, what did Washington want to do with them, and what power did Congress give them give him to do do, do to them? That's right. So this is this is a bit of a lightning rod um, area of the book, and I, I didn't expect to find what I did find in the history when I started this because when you hear about Washington, you hear about his his um his moral opposition to torture and um, prisoner mistreatment. And that's absolutely true. He he was very he's you know a very principled man, and he's more than opposed to um, sort of stooping to that level. He wanted to raise America's conduct o- over the barbaric wars of the past, and he you know he explicitly said that. However, it was only a few months into the war when he started realizing, you know what? I'm even more morally opposed to letting Americans die. So he came to find. Um, torture as a sort of necessary evil that he, you know, might need to employ in order to protect Americans. Now, there's there are some instances of, um, you know, sort of the, the torture we think of, you know, when we, we see Zero Dark Thirty, for instance, mm-hmm. um, where he's trying to get information. Um, there's this, one instance where there was a, a woman who was caught um, trying, you know, transmitting. Uh, secret information mm-hmm. and and they say you know she was pr- you know they were interrogating her and they said that you know she was a proof against every form of interrogation we tried and then sort of you know dot 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 at length she was brought to a confession <laughs> and they, they, they do gloss over some interesting things that were happening there in that regard but I'd say the bulk of what was happening with regard to um, torture and you know there's some gruesome things Involving searing irons and um, you know stonings and um, there's interesting things called spigots, which is basically a big screw, and they screw the person's foot into it. So there's some really gruesome, awful things happening. But what what they were using that for was retaliation. So the British were doing these awful things to the American prisoners that they had, and Washington had no other way to stop them but to employ the same measures against the troops, the prisoners that he held. So he saw torture as a potential tool, you know, gruesome, awful one that he, there, he had you know, proposed plenty of policy reasons why you know, we should steer clear whenever possible. Um, but at the same time, he wanted to protect the, the Americans themselves. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, I think it, it bears mentioning that in the context of the time, again, this was a sort of enlightened view because particularly as involved prisoners of war, the, the standard doctrine to that time was a prisoner of war was a slave. And you could sell them and do with them what you wanted. Now, it's true that many monarchs said, you know, this isn't a very good thing to do. But uh, traditionally in law, a prisoner of war, uh, this is definitely true to the Romans, a prisoner of war is a slave. And their property at that moment, you can do with them whatever you want. Now, you probably don't Mm -hmm. want to kill them because you can ransom them. But nonetheless, that's the precedent that they were working against. So the idea that you might treat them reasonably well and torture them occasionally for information, that was kind of an enlightened thing at the time. <laughs> it was. That was that was a nice thing to do. He was he was. He was again, he was Washington was a bit of a radical and that he was a radical in the good sense by by taking this step. I mean, sure enough when they um the British killed one of our, our our men that they captured. Washington did have his men draw, you know, the prisoners that he held draw straws. He was going to shoot a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't, you know, you know, completely, you know, fluffy and, you know, huggable. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but again, this was this was a barbaric time. Right. No, well, it was by our standards. It was. Yeah. So let's <laughs> let's talk about another instance. And so I, I guess closing that one, he he um he thought prison. You know, he would assume that the people that we have in Guantanamo are basically prisoners of war. And they're not American – insofar as they're not American citizens, the president can do whatever he wants with them. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's right. So let's talk about military tribunals. Um, what, what, did he, what did he think about military tribunals? And what is a military tribunal? A military tribunal, yes. So uh, there, there are a couple you know, types of courts. So there's the civilian courts where you have um, due process and protections um, that are set up by, by the legislature. And sort of common law courts have created to protect the innocent, to – um, and sort of give, you know, the, the accused a fighting chance at defending themselves. Then there, then you move into the military realm, and there are military commissions and uh, military courts martial. And the, the, these um, courts martial are typically they, they date back to the um, 13th century Britain, in which. Um, the king wanted to have a way of, you know, quickly disciplining his, his troops and keeping them in line. And this, this type of trial, this court-martial, it would, um, it would have some due process. There would be some protections, and it was the role of the court to determine whether this military person was guilty or not. But it was, it was you know, it was faster and more um, definitive and it tends to be harsher. Mm-hmm. Then you move to military commissions, and that's where things get messy. So well, military commissions were sort of a quick and dirty way of avoiding um, due process and providing any protections. So a military commission allowed the, the, you know, the commander to kind of do whatever he wanted. You know, often it would mirror some of the provisions of a court-martial, but it wasn't even really a court in the sense that a military commission was not trying to determine guilt or innocence. It was trying to, you know, deal, you know dole out quick punishment. They, um, so what's very telling is um, the story of um, Benedict Arnold's co-conspirators. So Benedict Arnold is going to sell West Point to the British. And he meets with um, a British officer named John Andre and also has the assistance of his American loyalist traitor, basically, Joshua Het Smith. And Arnold gets away. So Washington gets the American Smith and, and the Brit 
Andre. What's very telling is the way he treats the two men. They're captured as part of the same plot, um, under, you know, under very similar circumstances. But Washington provides Smith with a court-martial. So Congress had said um, people like this that are caught helping the enemy as, you know, as spies um, should have a court-martial. And so Smith gets this long trial over a couple of weeks in which he has a chance to defend himself. He doesn't really have a right to counsel or anything, but you know, he has at least some protections where he, has, he was questioning witnesses, the people who are acting as witnesses against him. He has a chance to you know, make rebuttals. And the, the, um, the officers who are overseeing this court-martial, they are sworn to try to decide his innocence. At the end of the weeks, shockingly, despite really damning evidence against him, they had the coat that he used to hide the spy. They had all this um, testimony of um, Smith being very chummy with, with Andre. Despite all that, people are shocked when the court-martial finds him not guilty. <laughs> and the reason they find him not guilty is because they say that he's an American citizen and he has a high burden of proof. And they couldn't prove... Um, in this man, he's a slippery character. He, they couldn't prove that he knew he was um, hurting the United States because his contention was that, hey, Benedict Arnold was an American general. I was just following his orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, <laughs> the Americans, they weren't you know, completely done with him yet. They actually sent him up to another prison on other charges. But then he escaped dressed as a woman. But that's a whole other, whole other story. He was, he was an interesting um, man, Joshua Smith. But then we turn to the British um, officer, John Andre. He is hanged after a couple days. <laughs> He's thrown before a military commission. And this, this, man, this young man is actually um, a much more sympathetic character than even the, the American Smith was. Um, you know, people sort of like him. He's, you know, charming, charismatic, um, well-educated, you know, well-read young man who, you know, the Americans themselves, even Washington, especially Hamilton, really, they praised him for being, you know, a brave British soldier. Um, he really was doing his duty to, you know, his country as he saw fit. Um, but you know what? Washington needed to be strong. He needed to send a message. He needed to protect his people. And he couldn't, even though his wrath really was directed at Arnold, he didn't have Arnold to to kill. So he had to kill someone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he used this military commission to um, basically have, you know, it's hard to even call it a trial because they weren't even trying to decide whether he was guilty or not. It was sort of, obviously he's guilty. Let's just hash out the facts and then decide whether we hang him or not. And, of course, they decided to hang him, and so mm-hmm. he was killed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an interesting divide, um, you know, going back to what I was you know, alluding to earlier regarding we have, um, you know, these different enemy combatants. So we have um, the Milan son-in-law, and for some reason we're giving him a, a civilian trial in, um, in New York. And then we have um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, down Guantanamo, and he's, he's under military commission, but there's been a lot of back and forth whether at one point we're trying to move him to a civilian trial, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of question what to do with the, um, the Boston bomber, who mm-hmm. is an American citizen. And Washington's 
pretty clear precedent on this is that the foreigners, the two foreigners, the, you know, the Milan um, Law and KSM, and you know the rest of the Guantanamo detainees that we decide are guilty. You know, the president can do whatever he wants. Just you know, swift justice um, in order to defend the nation. That was sort of their their rallying cry in this regard. But then when it comes to American citizens, it was very um, you know yellow light. You know, caution. Um, the president. We can't have a president who's going to become a tyrant, and he needs to be very careful to, you know, potentially execute this man, but do it according to the proper um, process so that we don't lose those liberties as American citizens that the, that the founders fought to protect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could sort of see where this could be going. So, you know, right now it might seem, you know, a great idea, you know, the public you know, cries like, oh, so obviously this person did this, you know, just execute them, you know, I'm sick of all these trials. And, and Washington had felt that, too. He, there was sort of this instinct to um, hang Joshua Hett Smith on yonder tree the second mm-hmm. he caught him. Mm-hmm. But when it came down to it, he saw, he saw the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, if I create this precedent, then what happens when, when you know, your neighbors on your street are sick of you, you know, putting your trash cans out too early, and they turn against you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you wanted to, you know, create clear precedents where, um, you know, mobs and the president, um, you know, any faction of the American um, government or populace can't just start, you know, turning on people and, and you know, executing them or imprisoning them without due process. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the thing that confuses me a little bit about um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in particular um, and about how this precedent of this British officer bears on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is that I understand uh, martial law and it's important for keeping order within your own ranks. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, I understand that when you capture an enemy in uniform fighting against you, that they are a prisoner of war and they are protected by the rights that prisoners of war have. They don't have any due process or anything like that. They are enemy combatants, as we would say today, and they get put in a prison camp and they probably get repatriated after the war. Uh, and I, I guess I, one thing I don't understand is why Khalid Sheikh Mohammed isn't in that category. I mean, isn't he just a, a and why wasn't, um, why wasn't our British fellow in that category? Wasn't he just simply, he was out of uniform, obviously, but right. but but it seemed to me he's just a he's a prisoner of war and full stop and that's it he doesn't get a process he didn't get anything can you can you enlighten me as a lawyer on what's going on there right. I don't, I don't yeah, get it right so so Needham are, are conventional combatants so they were not in uniform um, you know as acting for a conventional army in in battle on right the I got that part yep so so that was one distinguishing factor um, so Washington sort of clear precedent on this point is that you do what is best to defend the nation. So Washington might not necessarily have mm-hmm. um, decided that, you know, it's best to, you know, everyone go to he wouldn't go out, go there and start, you know, hanging them. Right, mow them down. He would, he would decide which ones he felt were worthy of punishment and would send a signal to, you know, to their, to their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so KSM, you know, falls in this category of being someone who has, you know, attacked the nation, you know, mastermind 9-11, no, you know, no one's a big fan of his, and was, did so outside of the 
conventions of war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, I mean, this is right, what we, we, I was going to say. This is this is what we said during um, in the Nuremberg process. We said, you know, so fine, the Germans were our enemies, but these particular Germans um, violated the conventions of war. They were um, war criminals. They didn't conduct war mm-hmm. fairly, and so we're going to kill them. Uh, and, and you know, and that makes a certain amount of sense too. Uh, and you could argue, I guess, that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, is a war criminal, too. I think you'd have to stretch war criminal pretty far. Well, I don't know if you would or not. I have no idea what the precedent is. I mean, he did kill civilians, but killing civilians in war, that's not a particularly unusual thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, again, it's just such a confusing where these military tribunals rest in terms of what we think is right and wrong and what we think is expedient and not expedient is just so confusing to me. And I think to a lot of Americans, mm-hmm. we don't get it. Now, I tell you what, honestly, I think we should have killed that guy a long time ago. Um, but, but you know, that's just my gut feeling, and we shouldn't go on our gut feelings, right? That's not a good right. thing, right? You know, it's, we don't want to do that. That would separate, you know, that's what makes us civilized. But, right. Yeah. Um, but Washington would have done the same thing. <laughs> yeah. He he would have he would have killed um, KSM a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and and that's sort of again, it's a lot of this has to do with process. So, you know, each president can determine you know what's in the, our our best policy. And what's going to the, you know protect America better? So, president could say, you know, I feel protected better by um, by keeping him alive and, and showing, you know, putting him in a country club somewhere. Right. And then president, <laughs> could, you know, come along and say that for whatever reason, yeah. whatever you know, crazy it sounds. And Washington would actually probably be okay with that um, because the the president really shows process and sort of who has the power to decide, and the it indicates that Washington saw the power of the presidency as being able to to kill him or not and right. sort of, you know, create those those um those, you know, types of tribunals to swiftly execute him and swiftly exact justice. Right. When it came down to it, he he was very open to I don't think he was creating a precedent where it says you know, the president say has to kill him. I see what you're saying. It's sort of the precedent is that he is very free to do with this man mm-hmm. whatever he thinks will best defend the nation. Yeah, I see and for Washington, the, the, um, that was you know, swift execution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he, he, would, he would say that would be mandatory. Right. And again, so, so really these cases are about presidential power as much as they are about, um, I don't know, justice or vengeance or winning a war. And the, and the point is, I guess you're saying from uh, Washington's perspective and I guess Obama's perspective today is that it doesn't matter what we do with Khalid Sheikh uh, uh, with, with KSM, I, 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 I get to decide, period. I'm the decider. <laughs> yep, that's true. Yeah. He has a, lot, has a lot of leeway. And um, I think Washington would probably, you know, in that particular case, would likely advocate for this man should be dead. <laughs> right, yeah, no, I see um, what you mean, yeah. Right. I think, you know, that that's a sort of time when your gut instinct to, you know, get the noose is is fine. Yeah. Um, because, again, it's, it's a foreign national who had attacked, uh, you know, Washington's people. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah. But then, you know, the times that when Washington would say, you know what, you, you can't do that, would just be reserved for the American citizens. Right. Because to him, citizens had rights and 
foreign nationals did not. Right. I got you. Exactly. Well, anyway, Logan, we've taken up a lot of your time. This has been a fascinating talk. Uh, I have to tell you, I learned a lot um, and much of it disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) About our our constitution (laughs) and about the president's role in it and about how much things have changed. So uh, it certainly is an interesting book. And I want to thank you for writing it. Let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history. And that is, what are you working on now? Right now, you caught me while I'm in the middle of um, an op-ed on the, you know, getting involved in the Syrian conflict, mm-hmm. and I'm um, sort of looking back to the founding and seeing what uh, tidbits of advice and wisdom that they they laid out for us when we're faced with a, a dilemma like we have today, where you know the, the Syrian rebels are fighting with the um, the government, and there's now there's talk of sarin gas being used, and you know terrible atrocities. And I think our, you know, our founders have some wisdom that might help guide us. Well, God, I hope they do. <laughs> and, and I so hope so, too. I'm not going to ask you what you're going to decide now. People have to read the op-ed. So I'm just <laughs> okay. won't, I won't offer any spoilers. So anyway, today we've been talking to Logan Byrne about his book, Blood of Tyrants, George Washington and the Forging of the Presidency. Uh, I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I want to thank everybody for listening, but I especially want to thank Logan for being on the show today. Thanks, Logan. Thank you very much, and thank everybody. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you.